0: This is Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith.
1: Renewables cannot power the world we know. Dr. Simon Michaud from the Geological Survey of Finland crunched the numbers. There is not enough time and not enough metals. In this unique interview on Rachel Donald's Planet Critical broadcast, Michaud explains the limits and what we can do in sustainable society.
0: Go to PlanetCritical.com to learn
2: more and subscribe. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. My guest this week is Simon Michon. Simon is an associate professor at the Geological Survey of Finland, and for years he's been researching the minerals crisis. The fact that we just don't have enough minerals and materials in the Earth's crust to develop a fully renewable economy. Simon's work shows that if we want a livable future, we're going to have to reduce our energy demands, our material demands, and live smaller, simpler lives. He joins me to give me an update on his work in the year and a half since we've spoken. He explains the mineral shortage, for those of you who haven't heard the first episode, He then discusses the mining problem, looking at the fiscal structures that will make a renewable economy very difficult. He walks us through how renewables are underperforming and discusses the battery problem. He then explains how to engineer a society that is livable and sustainable for the future, introducing us to a concept he's been working on called the resource-balanced economy. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. I wonder, Simon, Could you give a two-minute summary for anybody that doesn't yet understand what the problem is with our minerals and our our
3: materials? Okay, all right. So my name is Simon Michaud. I'm an Associate Professor of the Geological Survey of Finland. last couple of years, I have been tracking information and data in the industrial system to understand not only fossil fuels, like what does fossil fuels do for us now, but our ability to transfer and phase out those fossil fuels By applying the plan that we call the green transition. And what I have found is this problem is actually much, much larger than first understood and that a lot of the very basics have not been done by our policy leaders. They have just been talking in vague platitudes without actually doing the actual math of the practicalities of what they're proposing. One of the outcomes I have found is that, uh, The ability for us to actually deliver the number of electric vehicles, their batteries, solar panels, wind turbines, has serious mineral shortfalls, not only in production now, but also our industrial manufacturing capacity that is available in China, that's also too small, and our reserves and our resources and the resources under the sea, all not enough. So we've got a fundamental problem. And the way out of it is just to make a different plan. But that very, very basic solution seems to be too much for a lot of our policy at the moment. And so there's a lot of hand-wringing going on.
2: So what you're saying is that we have a fossil-fueled economy right now. Um And as the listeners of the show will know, fossil fuel is very energy-dense, incredible fuel. Um We sort of waste a lot of it because it's just so abundant. And we cannot substitute that fossil fuel economy with a renewable economy because we're lacking the minerals and the materials to do so.
3: Yes, and uh, so, but even if we had those materials, we actually don't have the time to bring it online. Mm-hmm. And now we've also got the problems; we don't have the money either. Mm. So they've really made sure to make the worst possible mess this possible. Mm. Um, some very, very unfortunate problem-solving has been used where everyone is assuming someone else is somewhere has actually already done this and everything's fine.
0: Yeah.
3: Everyone's referencing everyone else in a hall of mirrors mm-hmm. with the understanding that they've not actually looked at actually going and phasing out fossil fuels because it's so easy to keep using it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's, it's like um, an environmentalist saying, we don't want mining, but then goes down to the shop and buys a computer. Yeah right that has actually been manufactured on the other side of the planet using mining methods that you would think that are not only uh unethical but they're actually we would consider them illegal mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that's what the situation we have found ourselves in and and it it, it is remarkable uh it, it's like we've got a series of blind spots as a culture mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: and uh there's there's more than one and one of those blind spots is we tend to believe our own bull yeah And that is at all levels, but it's especially at the policy-making level.
2: Well, what is the alternative? I mean, if we live in like a growth-obsessed system and success and development is measured by growth, then to start talking about degrowth is sort of antithetical to the whole project.
3: Well, the basic problem is, is the last 50 years we've used ideology to solve all our problems. Yeah. Right. Um, Our currency, for example, is now what's called fiat. It's mm-hmm. virtual. If we want to balance our budget, we just print more money. It's been this way since the early 1970s. Right. And for that reason, we have become untethered from reality. And it's the virtual financial world is where we believe reality is.
1: Yeah.
3: Meanwhile, back at the bat cave, reality is now starting to impose itself. So here That's we such are. That's a
2: good way of putting it. The virtual financial worlds where we think reality is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean certainly we see it uh given I mean you'll be able to speak more on this than I can, but you know, the obsession with net zero policies as if emissions mm. that go out to the sky, if they're balanced on some digital book in some way, yep. then it's as if they don't actually exist in the atmosphere, as if yeah. the as if the biosphere is digital in some way as well and can be deleted like mm. a series of zeros and ones.
3: So this all comes down to a fundamental misunderstanding of the commodities industry. Mm-hmm. Right, we we believe like the last I don't know hundred years our technology has developed in like a a two to four year cycle where um a need will arise and then someone will go out and they'll invent a technology and that'll change the world mm-hmm. and the point from having the idea to actually getting it to market in the private sector seems to be around two to four years not right. not always but but the, but the commodities sector takes twenty years to open a single mine. Right. Right. So it happens much slower and the innovation in the commodity sector does tend to happen in very small increments. Oil and gas is different because a lot of money goes into it. But, but in the mining industry, the actual science behind mining hasn't changed much since the twenties. Yeah. Right. And, and so the engineering has changed as we sort of gone along, but the basic principle behind flotation, crushing, grinding, the last innovation was someone invented the hydrocyclone in 1920. And we've also got the problem where um, we've gone for the highest grade deposits first and you end up with the lowest grade deposits later. And we're using the same basic formula for the industry to actually operate. And that has happened all the way along. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: When you
2: say a first grade deposit and a low grade deposit, does that mean sort of the quality of minerals that are being mined?
3: Yeah. So not only is it the grade, so so for every, let's say, tonne of ore, how much metal do you have in it? And so, uh, when I started my career in say the mid nineties, uh, the cutoff grade for copper was about two or 3%. And below that, we didn't bother. It wasn't economic. Now the cutoff grade or cutoff grades for feasibility studies that I've actually taken part of is 0.1%. Hang
2: on. 0.1% of a mineral within, yeah. in a deposit of ore. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That's so a we've crazy
2: gone... amount of destruction for, for very little. Yes material
3: let, let, let's say you had like a um a gold ring on your finger
1: yeah.
3: right that gold ring has three tons of waste somewhere on a mining dump somewhere oh my god right so this this is the this is the thing so we've gone from say two or three percent to point one percent in the space of my career you know one person which is you know, which is what 28 years 25 years whatever it is
1: mm-hmm.
3: and so the other problem is the minerals themselves that we need to what's called we need to what's called liberate it liberate it from the rock so with the little particles metal we want them to be separate so we can actually then pull them out but if the little grains of minerals are really small right the smaller you go the more energy you've got to import in grinding and it Mm -hmm. goes up exponentially it's not a linear relationship it's exponential so to grind from say uh when my Korea started, the closing size of your conventional copper plant was around 150 micron. What does that mean? Uh, so you're going to take the rock, and we're going to mm-hmm. crush it, and then grind it. So most of what you've crushed and grind is smaller than 150 microns okay. in size, okay. right? And so now, so imagine you have like a giant big pile of particles, and then we're going to put it through what's called a flotation plant, which actually uses a chemical or physical difference to pull out the metals. And so what we're, what we're doing is copper, for example, is what's called hydrophobic. It does not like water. Mm-hmm. So you put it into water and then you put bubbles in it. You know, lots of bubbles, say, like, like say, uh, in your washing up. And as the bubbles rise through that, a copper particle will go, oh, there's a, there's a pocket of air and it will want to stick to that pocket of air mm-hmm. more than it wants to stay in the water. And so that rises to the top and you have what's called a froth bed. Mm-hmm. Scrape the froth bed off and you've concentrated it to about 25% copper wow. so and so and, that, and so that, but then you've got to take that and then put that in a smelter yeah which will then refine it down and and then uh to the point where you get 99.999% pure copper in a right. in a refining circuit on the other side so so that that's that's what they're doing so but if you've got to grind down to 150 micron right that's X amount of power. But if you've now got to grind down to 10 micron, that's not a linear relationship. You've got this exponential curve called the hooky energy relationship. So so vastly more energy is required to go finer. And what we're now tackling is, is deposits that are very disseminated and small-grained. So we have going to need much, much more energy and much, much more potable water consumed to actually extract a unit of metal compared to, say, 30 years ago.
2: Right. So the problem is there aren't enough reserves to make the transition. The reserves that we do have are of a lower quality. Yep. The energy costs to get the materials out like of those reserves that we would need and to yep. re, uh, refine them would also be higher.
1: Yep. And
2: all in the time when we are running out of the fuel that we currently use to yep. run our economy that we would need to also build everything for the renewable transition. So it seems like a, uh, no, we, there's another problem the again.
3: There's, a, there's, another, there's another problem again. Our mining system at the moment is heavily dependent on fossil fuels. Yeah. So what, what we do is we send like a gas pipeline out to the middle of nowhere to a pi- power plant that generates a lot of electricity and that electricity runs some of the machines and you have a diesel truck and shovel fleet to actually bring in the ore from the open pit. Right. And, and so we're not mining with solar panels and wind turbines.
0: <laughs>
3: right. And when we do, it's going to get real. What does that mean? And, uh, a mine is actually based around uh, a, an economic feasibility.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Is it economically viable to do? It's a very, very well-organized economic business model based on what's there, right? And at the moment, the cutoff grade associated with what is economically viable is associated with the mining costs. And power is a big cost,
0: mm-hmm.
3: right? So if that power triples or, or is now 10 times what it was before for one reason or another, then what is previously economic is no longer economic. So costs uh, are going to go up.
2: What about the fact that uh, renewable energy is getting progressively cheaper? At one it point, is, is it going to get cheaper than fossil fuels?
3: And then... So so hang on. It's getting cheaper when it's a still a small system.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But, but, but if it can be shown that we don't have enough minerals in the ground to make a replacement system, we will hit a asymptote in the market where all of a sudden there's now scarcity of metal supply and the systems you want to use are no longer available on the market. So that cheap price cannot stay cheap. It's a temporary situation. It's a situation while, while we have metal to supply, things are fine, right? But when we actually want to ramp up and actually sort of start doing this for real, um, then we've got a problem. So when I say it's going to get real, is when the mining industry now has to run in a situation where it is on non-fossil fuel systems only, right, the manufacturing supply chain at the moment is only conceptual and we just haven't thought it through. that like Fossil fuels are a hidden subsidy for everything. Take that away, you've now got a hidden penalty. And I think a lot of mining and a lot of manufacture will just simply stop.
1: Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at Ecoshock.org.
3: Right, and and that's just
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know w- w- what do you do?
2: Mm. And then uh, I imagine it, it becomes a bit of a sort of descending spiral then as as well. Mm. In that you've got you've got mining that stops, and and also I think it's worth putting out at this point that um. For all the advocate of a transition, like there's lots of environmental discussions and problems around mining and the excesses of mining and the fact mm. that we do not prioritize our resource use, for example, you, you know digging out gold producing three tons of waste so that it can go on somebody's mm. finger um but if we're in a position where we don't have fossil fuels to do the work and then mining progressively shuts down, then you can sort of kiss mm. goodbye to any dream of uh an increasingly expansive renewable economy
3: yeah so what what ends up happening is uh it moves out of an economic market paradigm into a strategic Mm -hmm. asset paradigm because fossil fuels are going and the only plan b we have is at the moment wind turbines solar panels and evs we don't have a technology somewhere else and we can't wait anymore Mm -hmm. right so the green transition will happen what i'm saying is it will be much much smaller than we think and so we're entering into a world of a energy contraction like a sharp energy contraction uh, and we're just not prepared for it at at the moment, and there's going to be a reordering and a revaluing of society. when we mine, for example, uh we use what's called the net present value tool, which works out uh that the basic principle is is if you've got like say a one pound note in your hand, that's worth more than if you maybe get say two or three pounds in a year's time because you might not. It's, it actually has a discount rate for risk, mm. right? And so when you invest in something, you actually have a risk assessment on whether it's a worthwhile investment or not. And so the more metal you've got in the ground that's actually accessible, the more value that's involved. But if it takes such a long time to develop, because that NPV calculation is insensitive after about seven or eight years.
2: What does that mean? Insensitive?
3: Uh, whatever happens after seven or eight years is of such a Little impact; it's not really included in the calculation. Okay. So what that means is, any rehabilitation costs of closing the mine down are actually not included in the start-up cost in that calculation. Oh. Right. And so they've got to include it in things like, uh, as to get a um, mining license, right? But the economic viability is not linked directly to that because the NPP tool doesn't really allow it. Okay. Because it's it's all about money uh and and they're all about starting like like in the South America masses and masses and masses of mining going on, you've got all these huge tailing dams, and no one knows what to do with them mm. yeah you, there's huge huge expanses of mining waste mm mm-hmm. and so it's it's all fine while it's a relatively small problem
1: mm.
3: uh, but but when the problems start to telescope out and get large, but like uh the the tires that come off the dump trucks in one of the mines, I think it's Escondido, or it's one of the ones in South America, The mm-hmm. tire stockpile of worn out tires is so large, it can be seen from space. Really? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> you can see it on Google Earth. and I think, well, gosh, guys. Um, wow. And so, yeah. So, so, so if you're mining in, in like, like a mine that's been operating for say like, you know, 30, 40 years and it's, processing at three or four thousand tons an hour and you're only taking 0.5 percent of the mass and the risk gets dumped somewhere yeah, now what it
2: go? Yeah, yeah yeah okay so when we last spoke and i want to um get on to what you think a viable renewable economy will look like um and what, what that actually means but when we last spoke um the idea was trying to Trying to get more of this information in front of policymakers mm-hmm. um and try and get them to listen. You've had success. Can you talk us through that? You spoke to you. Yeah, like it's
3: it's it's a little strange for me still. Until a couple of years ago, I was just used to being ignored like everyone else. And yeah, this was considered normal. I've presented my work now since the release of the first report, say, which was what, uh August twenty twenty one or July twenty twenty one, something like that. And so it's been what we're approaching two years. Mm-hmm. In that time, I presented my work over 160 times. But it's been often to groups that are um like ministers of government, civil servants who are actually sort of advising ministers, um universities, policy groups, investment groups. Uh, I've presented to the UN a couple of times, I think like three or four times now. And in each circumstance, they're saying the same things. First thing they always say is they were in shock; that they were not prepared for what I had showed them.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: They often say things like, "This is like drinking from a fire hose," <laughs> uh, uh, because every time someone criticizes my work, I go away and think about it, and then I add something into the next presentation to answer that criticism. Mm-hmm. And that's how you end up with such an information-rich 30 minutes uh, talk. And so. The second thing is no one has been able to refute my work. They don't criticize me to my face. The monkeys on Twitter like throwing poo, but the people who actually work to my face can't refute it because I'm using their own data. There is one gray area of discussion, which um, is something we should talk about, and that is the Mm -hmm. size of the buffer stationary storage power units for wind and solar.
2: Oh, and the stationary storage power yeah.
3: unit does that mean battery yeah. i'm using batteries but there are other things you can use like pumped hydro storage and uh and oh, stuff see. there are bottlenecks every single one of those we should discuss that in a moment of yeah. while that is the third thing they say is all right you scared the hell out of us now you're going to fix it i don't care how you do it but you fix it and you fix it now mm-hmm. and so they want a solution for plan b and that's now in progress so okay. the people who are actually looking at this they're not Refuting it and they often ask me to come back. Mm-hmm. Like the climate change fund in Finland, a group called Citra, they looked at this stuff and they said, hmm, right. And, and Finland's a culture where it is based on, you know, let's look at the facts. And if the facts are uncomfortable, we've got to look at this. And that's more prominent here in Finland than anywhere else. Whereas in Australia, you've got the headless chicken approach to things that don't, that challenge their paradigm. Would, mm-hmm. just don't worry about it. Leaves alone. So the Finns and the Swedes are all looking at this. The um, Department of Energy in America has picked up on this work. Yes. um, And they are actually auditing it internally, and they're trying to sort out whether I'm right or not. And they Mm -hmm. did their own study, and they found that conceptually, the problems especially with wind and solar were correct. They're underperforming. Could you give us
2: more details about how they're underperforming? Rather than just, okay, so beyond the, because I, I assume this is beyond the fact that we don't have the minerals to run yeah, our
3: This entire. is something else. This is something else. Right. So wind, let's do solar first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so solar is highly intermittent. It's very vulnerable to the weather and it only works during the day. Mm-hmm. So according to the Energy Observatory Agency, which I collect the stats on uh, what power was produced, not what they Thought they did or what they promised, what did they actually report? And solar globally were on average was producing 11.4% of the calendar year. That's the operating hours that they delivered power. So that's like for a 365 day year, they were producing power for 30 days okay. or uh, 40 days, whatever it is. Most of the time they are idle for these assets. Whereas a coal-fired power station is available something like 92% of the time.
0: Yeah.
3: So when you're re- replacing a coal-fired power station, you're putting it with many, 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 many solar units and wind units because they're idle most of the time because they're vulnerable to the weather. There's not a damn thing we can do about it. Because then the other thing you've got to transport the, the, the power out.
1: Yeah.
3: Uh, and so if, if you had, for example, solar power in the desert, it would be better because you've got better mm-hmm. solar radiance. But then you've got to transport the power to where it's needed. Mm-hmm. And the closer you get to the poles, like North Pole, South Pole, the more extreme the difference between winter and summer is. Now, the Princeton University in America developed the Net Zero Project, Net Zero America Project. And so one of the things they looked at was how much buffer do they need. And so they looked at the day-to-day differences between supply and demand must balance to a millionth of a second. Oh, wow. Right. So, And it, it must be clean sinusoidal power without spikes. It must be the frequency of, like, 50 hertz, Mm -hmm. and it it must be the same voltage, same current. And if it deviates even a little bit, it'll cook your computer. Mm -hmm. And like things like a blackout or a brownout, that'll cook your computer. So this is the difference between the day-to-day power generation. And so they thought they only needed five to seven hours of power storage buffer. Per day? No, for the whole grid to operate continually across the year. Okay. Right. So it's a, it's a very small amount. What they did not consider is the differences of the seasons. Like the sun in winter is much, much less strong than the mm-hmm. sun in summer. Mm-hmm. Solar radiance, solar hours. They didn't consider that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so if solar now represents according to the IEA, 38% of the global energy mix. Mm-hmm. Right. And yes, I think it's like 72 for wind and solar together. Right. So, so now it's, it's most of the energy is now uh, solar and wind. God. Right. So that, that's what they're proposing. Right. So, uh-huh. um, these systems are now so large, they've got to be internally self-sufficient. You can't balance them off against something else. Right. And so that system has to ride through winter when we want to spend power to heat buildings. Right. That mm-hmm. also happens to be when we have the poorest sun radiance.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: What has happened now. Is most power generation is fossil fuel in some form, coal or gas. It's like 60% or something. Uh, and some oil that can be done in any weather conditions, any time of year in any, any location. And so each power grid, what they do is no one produces exactly the amount of power they need. Some systems use too much, some too little, and then they trade it. Mm-hmm. They balance everything up by trading usually the gas industry, which is very flexible. Can go, it can be turned up and down at will. And so the gas industry is the buffer glue that holds everything together. Take nice. gas away. We can't balance the system, right? So if we are going to take fossil fuels away, but now we've got these systems that are highly vulnerable to the weather,
0: mm-hmm.
3: they're now the main energy systems. We have never had to actually balance, uh, internally a large renewable system.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: The, the wind turbines in Denmark, for example, are balanced by with power. That a fossil fuel base coming from germany and sweden yeah and so that's how they do it right but if you've got and that means
2: sorry sam that means yeah. when they drop out the fossil fuel power will will keep I mean, in will step in yes
3: right. yes that's right yeah. and so that and and when they generate more the fossil fuels can reduce a bit and and so they're able to to do this through the uh, trading of fossil fuels but a renewable power grid won't be able to do that so What it means, though, is if we can't work out a way around this, that we are not going to, um, wind and solar are actually not viable in their current form. Mm -hmm. Right. But the solution is not to flog ourselves to go off and find more buffer.
1: You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, EcoShock.org. This is Radio Equal Shop with your host, Alex Smith. We return to the hard facts about sustainable energy with Rachel Donald of Planet Critical and Dr. Simon Michaud, a mining engineer with the Geological Survey of Finland. The conversation returns with battery storage solutions, followed by Michaud's visions of true sustainable life.
3: So, why batteries? Okay. Pumped hydro storage is the cheapest way to do it at the moment.
2: And what so is got, pumped hydro storage? Is that when you pump water up to the top yeah. of the hill and then it's got and potential then, energy and then you release it and it's back, yes. energy?
3: So, okay. so you need to actually have a place where you can actually do that, a place yeah. that actually is capable of having a hydro plant, and then you've got a, 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 an elevator part where you can actually pump it up and it can come back down again. Yeah. Now, the problem is we need about 2,000 terawatt hours of capacity to be stored this is the capacity they need to ride through winter. This is for the 28 days. 28 days equals two, 2,100 terawatt hours. Now, that's huge. Most hydro s- systems that are actually okay for hydro already have a hydro plant on them. There's not very many left that don't have a hydro plant on them. Right, so now you've got mm-hmm. to find hydro plants with a place with a raised area, so the a raised reservoir, and they're even rarer. Mm-hmm. Now find 2,000 terawatt-hours capacity for that.
2: What does 2,000 terawatt-hours mean for us non-scientific people? How much power is that?
3: Okay, so in the year 2018, we used 26,614 terawatt-hours.
2: Wow, so 10% of our global energy use almost.
3: Yes, as it it stands now. You can probably expand pumped hydro a bit, but nowhere we're near enough to meet that requirement. Then you've got things like compressed air storage in caverns. Now that has engineering scaling issues. You can't just put it anywhere, and and you need to have like a, a geological, you know, a geomechanical competency underground. Um, and so you can do it for a bit, but again, 2,000 terawatt hour capacity. And the other one is spinning flywheels. What are they? You spin a flywheel up, and oh. it spins and spins and spins, and it keeps spinning. And then later, then you use it to generate electricity because you keeps spinning it 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 works right yeah. has its application, but you've got your you know efficiency curves there okay and again, you've got some engineering footprint problems so a um and the other one's supercapacitors where you it's like a battery, but you put put power into it, but it also wants to drain away, so you can keep it for a couple of minutes. Uh-huh. you're not going to keep it for months
2: right, okay. So
3: a rubbish right. battery. Yeah. Uh, but, but it, it has its application in trying to actually balance things at a perfect millionth of a second.
2: Right. Okay.
3: The Singapore government did a roadmap study mm-hmm. and they came to the conclusion that batteries were the preferred form. It's just a question of what chemistry to use because batteries can be put in any weather, in any location, in any footprint. Like you can have any shape. Uh, you, you don't have the logistical constraints of, say, you know, compressed air or, or, or flywheel bases or, or pumped hydro or anything like that. And What they don't understand is the sheer volume of power they need to operate. And, you know, they, they don't understand how much power that they need to actually store. So what's happened is everyone has collectively missed this basic problem.
2: The 2,100 terawatt.
3: Yeah. Yeah, the, the 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 amount of um, is and the fact that we don't really have a technology to store that much power mm. for a long time. You've got, for example, um six months of the year in say Berlin in summer, you get lots of sun. It exceeds the 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 average. Okay, you've got to collect that power and keep it for about six months, and then across winter another six months, you've got to release it slowly to make up that shortfall. Mm-hmm. And so you're storing power for as you know, sometimes eleven months. Right, and a lot of power. Yeah, and so, and the closer you get to the northern extreme poles, the more pronounced that difference actually is. Right, and, and so, and wind has the problem of these massive peaks and lulls, mm-hmm. where a windstorm will come in and you'll have like a really, really high amplitude, but you can have a swing of up to 48% of capacity, because then after that you've got like say a couple of days where there's no wind at all.
1: Yeah.
3: The, even though it's a couple of days, the size of the peak dictates the amount of buffer you need. And mm-hmm. so I actually don't know how much buffer is needed for these systems, and I don't think anyone else does either. Okay. I just sort of highlighted that this is a problem. We should look at it. Yeah. But the thing is, yeah.
2: But Sorry, but do we have – I mean – what is the battery field looking like? Uh, are there mega batteries in development? Will it be possible in five years' time? And what are also the minerals, um, what would a mineral shortage do to the battery industry as well?
3: Everyone believes that lithium-ion batteries are the thing. Like if you try and get a funding project through uh, Europe in particular, they won't look at you unless you're talking lithium-ion chemistry. right? And so this is the problem. We don't have enough lithium. But the batteries' options are, uh, lithium, nickel, cobalt, aluminium oxide or NCA, NCA plus lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt oxides or NMCs so like, uh, NMCA11 or NMC532. Lithium phosphate, LFP or solid state batteries and solid state batteries all require lithium. And then okay. you've got van- vanadium redox batteries and, uh, and so it's a combination of the, the uh, uh something in there and, it, and and there's like the the IEA have released a, a market share of what they think 2040 and 2050 would look like and so that's what i use to predict the future the thing is the sheer number of batteries is huge mm-hmm. right uh, like like um elon musk for example released a um podcast uh about a week ago where he can now make batteries without lithium and he's doing it with a variation of NMC 532 chemistry, okay, amazing, good on you, mate, good. But he now needs nickel, manganese and cobalt
0: mm-hmm.
3: to do that. So lithium and cobalt, uh, and and nickel, sorry, and cobalt, both have shortfall profiles in the battery space because the sheer number, what we're looking at. So now we're back to a battery mineral shortage. But here's the thing: we can make batteries out of something else. You don't have to use this stuff. You can make them out of sodium. There's okay. a guy here in Finland that's making them out of table salt. So these things are often, you know, waste products. Everyone likes the idea, but no one wants to look at these systems. They they want lithium, iron chemistry instead. It's Why? like what we've put a. It's sexy. That's it. It's it's it, it's it's literally a group thing. Because okay. you, you've got to build a market value chain around a new chemistry, it doesn't just happen. Mm-hmm. You need to source the minerals, turn it into something useful like a metal or a chemical and a manufacturing plant to turn it into a battery. Then the mm-hmm. battery has to be suitable in an engineering stand to be used in technology. And everyone knows what to do with lithium-ion uh, chemistry uh, batteries, but they don't know what to do with, say, a sodium battery yet. There's, there's lots of talky-talky, but not a lot of wickety-whack. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a problem across the board. So the recycling stuff, there are recycling options. In terms of technology, but the problem in recycling is not the technology itself. It's collection. Mm-hmm. How do you get the right residue into the right process plant? That's the challenge. Uh, but uh, there's an interesting statistic: most mobile phones have not been collected for recycling. Most people have their old mobile phone in a drawer somewhere.
2: Yeah.
3: Ninety-five no. percent are in a drawer somewhere. Right. And so, and if you're not going to get enough. Together, in a, in a mass, it's not worthwhile to recycle. And then recycling the stuff out of a mobile phone is really complex because they're quite complex devices. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's not economical. So they just generally go for the, the gold, the platinum, and the silver, and they just leave the rest and yeah, yeah, go into yeah. landfill. So, so what we do is instead of trying to actually flog ourselves to find more power storage, we develop an electro, electrical engineering technology that can cope with variable power and so it's it's tough enough that can survive for example frequency fluctuations and power spikes and sometimes there's no power at all sometimes there is sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't so if we can actually sort of have a technology like a computer that could survive that then we all go the need of the power buffer it's a it's yeah. a tough ask so instead of having one big seamless grid could we have several grids that do different things Mm-hmm. Like we might have like a highly intermittent grid, whose purpose is to produce hydrogen, right? And in that producing hydrogen, sometimes it's on, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's going really well, sometimes it's not,
0: Mm
3: -hmm. right? So that's an industrial application that will chew a lot of power. Um, Charging of batteries, that's an industrial thing. Like yeah, all every what where we get our service station, where we buy our. Gasoline petrol from now uh, and a parallel system of charging electric cars has to be introduced somehow. Okay. If we could link, if we could link the power needed to generate that electric power, can that be done in a way that is highly variable? At home, you might have a thing where you're the lights that you've got on and sometimes they're on, sometimes they're not. And we just, just accept the fact that things are variable. We're very uh-huh. used to the idea of flicking the switch and there it is. Um, like computers for example might run on a buffer for a period of time but when it shuts down it's got to wait till power comes again and until then you can't have your computer it might be something like that what that oh. looks like i don't know
1: you are listening to energy and mining expert dr simon may in conversation with rachel donald of planet critical
2: and this is not this is not necessarily uncommon as well like we are very very spoiled in the west quote unquote but yep. south africa plenty of rolling like daily rolling blackouts to manage yep. the the energy grid like mm-hmm. this is how some countries survive
3: yep that's right mm-hmm. and we all think that's not our problem i can see uh, um difficulties on multiple fronts here society at the moment for example is very used to like a just in time supply grid mm-hmm. and it's economic for the example I like to use is in Edinburgh, they go and fish for salmon in the sea. Right. So the fishermen who go and fish the salmon, they get this lovely salmon. What do they do? They put it on a boat and send it to Vietnam. In Vietnam, it's put in a tin. The tins are put on another ship and brought back to Edinburgh and put in the supermarket. Mm. So the fishermen who fish for the salmon, when they buy food for their for their families, they go to the supermarket and they buy these tins of salmon. They could... Go down to a fish market and buy fresh salmon and use that, but that's mm-hmm. not what they do to do. It makes economic sense to do that because energy is so cheap. It's irrelevant. So, so we're, we're going to start ma- managing our energy and our material consumption. Like we manage our money. We are damn careful with our money. And I think it's going to become something like that.
2: Okay. So we are looking at energy shortages a decline in energy that is available a decline in time when energy is available we're looking at a big energy contraction wasn't it you you have the stat that we are currently at a 19 gigawatt society and we need to go down to a five gigawatt society Uh,
1: i think
3: nate Hagens uh uh, had that one i agree he had the 19 uh, terawatt Terawatt, 19 terawatt society and he said, we need to go to a, a 10 terawatt society. I laughed at him and said, there's probably going to be two, maybe five if we're lucky. Right. Okay. <laughs> and so, because here's the thing. It would be different if we started 40 years ago mm. and we slowly organize things over time, but we've done nothing. 1% of the electric vehicle of the global fleet of vehicles is electric vehicles. That's at 1.1%. Mm. Right. And renewable energy is still what four or 5% of the primary energy pie. We've done nothing. Right. So, right. So what that means is the the whole non fossil fuel system hasn't been built yet.
1: Yeah.
3: We we just we just haven't done it yet. And things are about to go seriously inelastic economically. Mm -hmm. We I, I reckon. Oh, well, it's an opinion. Right. By the end of this year, we could find ourselves in a kinetic shooting war, east versus west, as in Russia and China versus everyone else. Mm -hmm. Now ethics aside We are dependent on both of those countries For everything we actually need And so we've allowed ourselves to be in a conflict Without making ourselves self-sufficient first Mm -hmm. And what that means We want to buy uh, I don't know 100 million electric vehicles And say 10,000 wind turbines Where does that all come from? China Who makes that stuff? China Who does the mining? China Mm -hmm. Right Right. Um, we don't have the money now, but be nice to us. Hang on. No, no, that's not going to work either. Uh, and so this stuff's not going to be available on the market.
0: Yeah.
3: And, and so we're going to have like a step down, even if we got serious and said, right, we now want 10,000 wind turbines. The time it would take the Chinese to, to deliver on that is, is, is years. It takes time to make this stuff. They've only got so much capacity to start pumping stuff out. And, and what if-, if we're not, if we're not going to get along. They're not going to give it to us. Absolutely.
2: What, ab- what about our engineering know-how and our industrial manufacturing capacity?
3: Okay, sure. So we have to develop a local capacity. In, in the British Isles, right across the British Isles, you have a history of mining. But mining is considered dirty and filthy and unenvironmental. You don't do mining anymore. You depend on it from somewhere else. You are. How long, how long would it take for you to establish a mining industry in the British Isles again. And so, well, if you got serious, you are took you know, 10, 15, 20 years. So it takes that long to build this stuff. Yeah. On top of that, now you've got to have the ability to smelt the stuff into metals. At the moment, we get the Chinese to do all that. How long mm. would it take to build the smelters? Again, 15 years, maybe. And then on top of that, so you've got a lot of manufacturing capability in the UK. And in fact, there, um, there is a plan I'm putting forward that, um, Finland, what's the size of the circular economy? That could be right across the Nordic frontier countries, but we need a dance partner, and I'm proposing the UK is that dance partner. Why? Um, in, so the Nordic frontier can tie up the one end of the value chain from mining to chemicals, to refining chemicals and metals, uh-huh. but we don't have any manufacturing capacity. Right. The UK has the manufacturing capacity, but you have shut down and, and, and atrophied your resource sector.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Right so we can so that we we can actually take up one end and you take up the other end and we do business. Right. And now that now that now that you're outside the EU you're actually easier to deal with. Right right so
2: <laughs> I mean that's yeah. the first time anybody said that sentence ever. <laughs>
3: well okay. Uh, look I've been burned at the stake for less so we'll see how that goes. Um it will take time if if the UK decides to get real. Yeah and and actually sort of build its own capability we're talking years 15 maybe 20 years maybe more things are about to get real between the west and the east in the next few months so we're so we're down to months and and we tend to do stupid stuff like we throw economic sanctions around and i, I don't believe there are any good guys in that conversation we're all doing dodgy stuff all of yeah. us who blew up yeah. the Nord stream uh, pipeline Who indeed? (laughs) Asking for a friend, because whoever, so whoever did that, they've guaranteed that Europe is now in a situation where it must be committed to a military action that it cannot actually win.
2: Take and maintain energy dominance, because it's the United States that is now like rerouting the natural gas routes and like making sure that uh, that Europe has got enough and essentially indebting Europe in some way. Um, and making them rely on the, yeah, the energy streams that they they um, now depend on. Now that the Russian energy stream is out of the picture, Europe very much depends on the United States for energy supply. Is that not correct?
3: Europe at large has been thrown under the bus to maintain the dollar system. And I'm hearing, I'm getting phone calls from the people I know in the German civil service who are, there's a very tense internal conversation going on and the problem they've got is all models for the future of, that they've got have crashed, and now there's a very bitter dispute about which paradigm should go forward now. Do we go back to nuclear? Do we open coal mines again? Do we somehow magic up some solar panels and wind turbines? They don't know what to do, and 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 they, and they just don't they, they don't. That conversation I had with them was about eight nine months ago. I don't know what they did, right. uh, Um but but they're in an increasingly desperate situation. A lot of industry in Europe has worked out, well, we can't operate here because our gas supply has been weaponized. And so now they're going to the United States and the United States wrote the inflation act about the same time that Europe, Mm -hmm. Europe was convinced to apply the sanctions. Okay. So we've been oceans 11 by our own allies. Uh, and they're saying things like, come to us, set your operations up in, in America. And they, they want their industry back and we will never hold you to ransom for your supply of gas. You're welcome.
2: Okay. So in all that you're saying, Europe is in a particularly weak position of yep. the developed world. And of course, like this conversation has not particularly engaged with the, the problems in the global south, which are resource rich, but have yep. been sort of manipulated into low value added manufacturing and deliberately denied the capacity to become independent and sovereign and all this kind of thing. Yep. But in the Western world, Europe, Europe's in the
3: essentially. Yes, but it's not clear who's manipulating who. And mm-hmm. I think everyone's doing dodgy stuff. Peak oil was a thing that was projected to destroy society. Uh, because, you know, oil was much richer than gas
1: yeah.
3: uh, calorifically. So, so your energy return on energy invested, it will be lower. Mm-hmm. And we're now building in a very, very structural inefficiency into the gas industry. But... They're holding it together, and so it's possible our total liquids consumption could beat the 2018 record. Oil has contracted, and I don't think it's coming back.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody I speak to thinks it's coming back. All right, so we're in a pretty bad way. We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough capacity. We don't have very many friends. And even for those of us living in this part of the world, used to lives of huge luxury, those luxuries are going to go and rightly so because they're built off the backs of exploitation and extraction. But our policymakers are sort of seemingly blind to what's going on because it would demand a massive overhaul of the status quo. However, I understand that you are working on a model called the resource balanced economy to present to them. Could you walk us through that?
3: Right. So the Swedish government, they, they asked me directly and says, okay. um, could you, because I'm part of a group called the Circular Economy Solutions within the Geological Survey and so we, we've got our hands on what we call the circular economy and it says could you redesign that circular economy in context of your work that is, we're about to lose fossil fuels we don't have enough resources to do the green transition, etc, what do we do and so I find it's futile to try and sort of dictate what the future will be like so, right So what I've done is try to understand the boundary conditions of what the future might be and to understand where we put our effort. Instead of actually flocking yourself trying to prevent a problem, put your energy on what will thrive and work in the solution set and then that will override everything else. So, industrially, where will things likely to work? If we've got the twin problems that we don't have enough energy, and raw materials as well, and a particular stuff arriving on the market. In Australia, we get hit with natural disasters every now and then, and what we do when you have an emergency is everyone puts aside their normal op- mode of operation, and the society comes together and we say, so we will now do what is necessary to see to the needs of those societies. So in an emergency context, something we really need to have happen is no longer available. What do we do? It's almost like a wartime problem-solving or an economic depression problem-solving, do we collectively sit on our butts and wait for it to get better? Or do we realise that this is not getting better, we've got to fix it? And to fix it, we've got to build something else that we've not seen before. Mm -hmm. And once we collectively understand that, right, the transport sector will take the biggest hit. In Finland, for example, 80% of our electricity is already coming from non-fossil fuels. And we've got a heavy industry system of smelters and refineries that are actually already operating on non-fossil fuels. But most of the transport sector is fossil fuels. The tap gets turned off or, or, or becomes very volatile. Or the government says this is now so expensive and we don't have a lot now that we're going to start talking rationing. It's going to be a rough learning curve. But transport will contract. Energy use will contract. People will adapt. And so we'll become a low energy society. Where do we get our food from is a big problem. And so we've got to get off petrochemical fertilizers anyway. Yeah. But it would have been preferable not to do it like this in conventional industrial agriculture is a problem. Yeah. So this, this is the idea where I believe society is going to split into four basic paradigms. And, and so you know, how, how do we respond to this and, and which of those paradigms are actually going to be useful?
2: And which are <laughs> what I
3: Okay. So this is, um, an idea that I put together. First one is the cornucopians. These are the people who believe it'll be fine. Someone will think of something. It'll work out. We're not really in much trouble. It's all good. Okay. And the people who refuse to actually engage in this conversation at all, okay. Um people who want to keep the existing fossil fuel system going, people who believe, for example, that the green transition in its current form is what we do, you know, Uh, most of the people working in the oil industry believe electric vehicles will come online and make everything so cheap that oil will become obsolete and they all drive teslas right so they see this as as an economic problem
0: yeah
3: right but they don't want to hear about resource limits
0: Mm -hmm.
3: and so you can't do anything with these people wave goodbye see ya go and, and don't like like don't um, I, I, I found out the hard way. It's so much easier to go and work with like-minded people than to try and convince people of things they don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. Right. Second group is a group I call the Vikings. Although when I was talking to Amanda Scott the other day, she said she prefers to call them the pirates. These are people who realize everything's, the wheels are falling off and it's getting tough. But instead of going through the hard work of making a new system let's just go and take stuff from someone else okay and the readers the raiders and mm-hmm. so yeah that's that's a good one so so let's go and take stuff from someone else the problem is there comes a point when there's no more stuff to take or their ability to go and take is becomes very difficult because they don't have like you know fuel to move around in the same way anymore yeah and now this is a, a mentality we're seeing at all levels, including nation-state levels. Yeah. Like, like yeah. There's this, this idea of predation. See. Instead of doing things collectively and can we make a better solution? No, no, no. Let's try and take stuff off each other. The third group is the group of the, I call the prepper community. And so these are the people who understand the wheels are falling off. Our normal systems that we normally operate with are not doing so well. And then they will step up and take care of business to make sure that the needs of society are looked to. And they do things like grow their own food. They'll manage their own sewage sanitation. They'll manage their own water supply. Uh They'll either go without power generation or they'll generate their own power. You know, That's that stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And they'll use problem solving from any different sector. It doesn't have to be pretty as long as it works. Okay. The fourth group is a group I call the Arcadians. And they are the group that actually uh, looks 100 years into the future or something like that. And it says, how do we build a new society that's genuinely wise, where humanity has learned everything it needs to learn and we can actually be genuinely sustainable? And you have the harmonious merging of people, the social contract, the environment in all its forms and all its scales, and what technology we have available. Okay. What does that look like?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And so, um, yeah. And so there's groups like the Venus Project and Jacques Fresco that's been thinking about that since the 70s, but they, um, a lot of the work done thus far has not recognized the material shortages or the energy shortages.
1: Right.
0: Okay.
3: And so the way forward for me is you take something like the Venus Project and you integrate it into the prepper community.
0: Yeah.
3: What would happen if the prepper community were handed some re- uh, disruptive technology? That, mm. that, was able to recognize the commodity shortfalls that Mm. would change everything we've got to fix our relationship with the environment and we've got to do it at all levels and it's got to be done the way we live
2: if you loved it support planet critical on patreon where you can also read my weekly essays inspired by each podcast thank you all for listening
0: go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe
1: This conversation between Rachel Donald of Planet Critical and Dr. Simon Michaud was edited for radio by Mariah Gallardin of TUC Radio, first half hour, and Alex Smith of Radio EcoShock, second half hour. My thanks to Mariah and Rachel for making this essential information available. Rachel Donald is on Substack at www.planetcritical.com You can support Rachel's work in independent climate journalism on Patreon. Find my notes on this Simon Michaud talk in my weekly show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Our time is up. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our
0: world. Just a little story from Penn State
2: geologist Richard Alley.
0: Now, come a little farther forward in time, we're now now in the, the Saurian sauna of the mid-Cretaceous. It's still hot. There's no ice near sea level at the poles anywhere. Um, you have, have balmy temperatures. You have forests crowding up to the edge of the Arctic Ocean. Um, the continents are not that different from now. And if you put them in a model, as has been done, you know, a little, you melt all the ice and the sea level gets a little higher and that changes the planet's albedo a little and you get a little bit of warming and you move the currents around and you might a a little, little bit of warming with some configurations. You can't get much. And so it's really stinking hot. And the only explanation we can find on this is that CO2 is really high again. And um, probably, again, because volcanism is running pretty fast. If you put high CO2 in the models, you sort of match what happened, except it, the, the world seems a little bit too warm at the poles. If you leave the CO2 out of the models, you don't get very close. The only way we can attribute this warmth of having an ice free world is, is to have a high CO2. This
2: is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign-up, just the latest info, free for all. Ecoshock.org
1: Canadian one-man band Shane Phillip
0: And the sea is rising and rising and rising then it falls just like us And the Stays the same, accept
2: us. Ooh, we gotta work together, gotta help each other, they gotta make each other better. And that's what this life's for.